I'm Deacon Kevin, and this is Forming Our Faith, one of the growing number of podcasts in the Diocese of Tulsa. I said during the first episode of Forming Our Faith that the topic people in the parish most wanted to know more about so that their faith could be better formed is the Mass. Part of the reason we came up with this podcast was precisely to do this, to dive into the parts of the Mass and show people what is found in the depths of the liturgy, things they might not know or appreciate precisely because these things are in the depths. And many people, maybe even most people, don't have the time, the wherewithal, or the confidence to dive to those depths without guidance. I get this. Most of the men and women in the pews at Sunday Mass are not academic theologians, and few of them have been trained in the liturgy. I also said that one of the dangers of our information-saturated age is that we can confuse information with knowledge. Just knowing about something doesn't mean that something forms the way you think and act and choose. You can know lots of things about the Mass as bits of information and disjointed facts, but that doesn't automatically lead to seeing and celebrating the Mass as the Church intends. The goal of this first series of Forming Our Faith is to give you something that helps to form your vision so that you see the next Mass you attend differently, and that difference causes your next Mass to be the best, the most sublime, the holiest, the liveliest Mass you've ever attended. It's not quite that you understand the Mass the way you'd understand how a jet engine works or how to bake a souffle, but that the richness of the liturgy is more accessible to you. And seeing the beauty of that treasure makes it more appetizing and more appealing to you. That was the plan for the first episodes of Forming Our Faith, to present the Mass. And here we are, at the beginning of the fourth episode, and one thing I haven't said anything about yet is Mass. I've got into where Mass happens and what you can expect to find within that space. Statues and icons, the altar, the tabernacle, the pews, the narthex, holy water. But I haven't said anything about Mass. Well, that changes now. Now, with all the preparations underway, we can begin examining the Mass. A great advantage of the format I've chosen for forming our faith is that I'm not under time constraints. If you're doing the Catechism in a Year with Father Mike Schmitz, you know what you're working with and how long it's going to take. You're going to go through the Catechism, and it's going to take a year. I don't have parameters like that. I can take as much time as I want with everything in the Mass. And this is okay for a couple of reasons. One is that I'm not being paid by the episode. Another, and a more serious reason, is that the Mass is not an artifact to be studied like a painting, a performance to be enjoyed and criticized like an opera, or an investigation into unknown laws like a thermonuclear explosion. The Mass is an organic and living thing animated by the very presence of God, who is the source of life. One of the most audacious claims the Catholic Church makes, a claim so bold that it is bombastic and blasphemous if it's not true, is that during the Mass, God is so present to us that we can see and touch and taste him. Jesus tells us in the Gospel that where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in their midst. And we as Catholics absolutely believe that. 
when Christians come together for a Bible study or to distribute clothing to the needy, doing so because they want to know and love and serve God means that Jesus is present in those gatherings. But within the Mass, Jesus makes himself known to us, not just because of his promise to be there, but in ways perceptible to our senses. This is the idea at the heart of what the Catholic Church teaches about a sacrament. If you consult with the Catechism, you'll find the theological definition. A sacrament is an efficacious symbol of grace, instituted by Christ and entrusted to the Church, through which the divine life is dispensed to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the definition I'd require my students to know when I taught sacraments to high school sophomores. As efficacious symbols, sacraments don't just remind us of a deeper reality or orient us in the direction of that deeper reality. They make that deeper reality present here and now through perceptible means. It's one thing, and it's a good thing, to know that Jesus is present because he promised to be so. It's a better thing to see and to touch and to taste him. If you were to ask people at Mass what the first thing that happens at Mass is, my guess is that a large percentage would say the opening hymn or some variant. While most Sunday Masses we attend do open with a hymn or a song, that isn't the first part of the Mass, at least not in and of itself. In fact, for most of the Church's history, the Mass did not have a hymn at the beginning, or at the end for that matter. At the beginning of the Mass, there's an entrance chant called an antiphon. This is a short verse taken from Scripture, many times from the Psalms, and set to a chant tone. So you don't get to choose which antiphon is used. It's set according to the day. Only since the 1500s or so has Mass opened with a hymn. And that's not to say that hymns are unimportant or meaningless, but that the beginning of the liturgy the Church celebrates in the Mass is not marked by the music that we've come to expect. The first part of Mass might be accompanied by a hymn or a song, but it's not dependent on the presence of music or singing. The antiphon might simply be said, but properly speaking, Mass begins with the procession. It's at this point, right when I've introduced the first movement of the Mass, that I have to reiterate something I said when I talked about how churches are built. Nothing that happens during the Mass is accidental, random, or meaningless. Everything means something. Every word, every gesture, every movement, every vestment, every use of incense or ringing of bells, everything means something. So if you're at Mass and something happens that's not obviously accidental, like a server tripping on his robe or the reader turning to the wrong page, it's supposed to be in the liturgy, and it's supposed to mean something. When I taught in the high school, and more recently in the OCIA cohort I lead in the parish, I tell people that the answer to any question in the Catholic Church is, in some way, Jesus Christ. So what everything in the liturgy is supposed to reveal is Jesus Christ. Every word, every gesture, every scent, every vestment, every note of every song should reveal somehow Jesus Christ himself. There are times when that revelation is obvious and transparent, and others where it's hidden and opaque. I found that answering, how does this reveal Jesus, 
has been a great catalyst of grace in my life and has seen tremendous growth of my life in the faith and my appreciation for what the church does in worship. That question is going to be at the heart of our exploration of the Mass. And remember, the point is for your next Mass to be the greatest Mass in which you've ever participated. And that's not just because you know more about the Mass. It's because you, what you know enables you to see Jesus Christ in things that didn't used to do that for you. It's as if you, everything that happens or is said or done during the Mass comes with a subtitle that you can read, Jesus. Typically, the procession is the movement of the priest, the deacon, if there is one, readers and servers, if there are any, from the back of the church to the sanctuary. And in a mechanical sense, yeah, that's what happens. But the procession is not just to get people moving from one place to another. If that's all it was, there would be no reason why Mass couldn't just begin with the priest standing at the presider's chair in the sanctuary. The procession is supposed to reveal something about Jesus Christ to us. But to get to the heart of how this is so, I have to say a little bit more about the way churches are built. The commonly stated date for the establishment of the church by our Lord is Pentecost in the year 33 AD. 31 years later, in 64 AD, Christianity was outlawed by the Emperor Nero following a catastrophic fire that destroyed much of the city of Rome, a fire Nero blamed on Christians. Because Christianity was outlawed so shortly after its beginning, we don't really know what the earliest churches looked like. We know from Acts of the Apostles that Christians in Jerusalem would meet in the temple, and from St. Paul that Christians gathered in synagogues. But history doesn't know exactly what distinctly Christian spaces looked like, spaces intentionally constructed for the purposes of worship, if there even were any. After 64, Christians met in house churches, which were already constructed residences adapted for the celebration of the Mass, and it was this way more or less for about 250 years. Christians couldn't build churches because a building known to be a church would be a magnet for the imperial authorities. And if there was any fervor for persecution, they'd be like billboards advertising which people the authorities should arrest. But once the prohibition against the church was lifted in the early 4th century, a massive building campaign took place throughout the Roman Empire that saw the large-scale construction of churches. And this program continued for centuries. And from the first millennium, we can glean this architectural constant. Churches were built facing the east. Remember, this was a time when the priest would face the same direction as the assembly. So during the Eucharistic prayer, everybody in the church would be facing east. The front of the church was the east face, which means that the back of the church is to the west. Why is this important? so much so that it reveals something about Jesus Christ. Well, what happens in the East? The obvious answer, it's where the sun rises. So imagine, everyone is facing the direction of the rising of the sun during the liturgy that especially commemorates the rising of the Son of God. The East was, for the church, the direction of the resurrection, so much so that even nature itself participated in this revelation a revelation made fully only in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
In this sense, nature itself is a part of the liturgy and glorifies its creator. It's symbolic of a deeper reality. The East was also a theological symbol for the Jewish people, our forebears in the faith with whom God made the first covenant. In chapter 10 of the book of the prophet Ezekiel, right before the Babylonian exile in the 6th century BC, the people of Judah are about to be attacked and conquered by the Babylonians and sent off to live in a foreign land. The temple is going to be reduced to rubble. But before it is, Ezekiel has a vision in which the presence of the Lord vacates the temple and abandons Jerusalem to the east. If the east is the direction towards which God disappeared, it stands to reason that's the direction from which he will return. And this is exactly what St. John saw in the book of Revelation, the Son of Man coming from the east. Now, we might dismiss primitive religions pagan religions because they worshipped the sun. But the movement of the sun was a kind of foreshadowing or prefiguring of the true sun who rose from the darkness of death. The ancient error was that the gods imitated nature. The truth in Christ is that nature imitates God. The Eastern orientation might not always hold true in specific churches due to the shape of the property or the position of the roads that feed the church. So the geographical direction of the church on the compass might not always be towards the east. Here in Tulsa, the direction our cathedral faces is west. The direction my parish faces is south. St. Peter's Basilica in Rome faces west. But liturgically, when you're in a Catholic church, you're facing the east. The east is the direction of life, of resurrection, of God's presence. It's where the sun is reborn every day. The west, by contrast, is where the sun sets and light dies out. West is the direction of death. This has enormous ritual significance in much of what the church does and reveals the depth of those rituals. In many Catholic churches, the baptismal font is in the narthex, in the back of the church. And what happens in baptism? A person who is dead because of sin is reborn into the life of the Blessed Trinity. In the waters of baptism is a death and a rebirth to a life that cannot die. Baptism appropriately happens at the western end of the church because the person who is being baptized starts out dead. But that's not how they end up. They end up alive in Christ, and so they have to move towards Christ. We'll cover the sacraments later in forming our faith, so I won't go into it too deeply now. But in the church's baptismal liturgy, right after the baptism, there's a procession into the church towards the east. That movement is symbolic, a movement from death to life that has been accomplished in the person who was just baptized. That movement signifies a deeper reality that the sacrament has affected because that reality is now present. That's the procession during baptism. Now think of the procession that happens at the beginning of Mass. Where does it start? In the back of the church, the West, that place of death and lifelessness and darkness. That's where the priest and deacon and readers and servers start, but they don't stay there. They move from the back of the church to the front. They move from the west to the east, from death to life. 
This procession is a representation of that procession each of us made when we were baptized from death to life. I said last episode that we bless ourselves with holy water when we enter the church as a reminder of our baptism. The procession is supposed to be another reminder of our baptism. It's supposed to symbolize the movement from death to life that only happens when we are united with and live in Christ. It shows us that if we're not moving towards Christ, the source of all life and light, we are dying. It's not just that the procession moves us closer to Jesus. It's that the procession moves with Jesus, because of Jesus, and in Jesus. His Paschal mystery, his suffering, death, and resurrection, is the reason we can receive life in him in baptism, and it's the reason we can move closer to him. So the procession is all about Jesus. In the book of Exodus, God's people have been enslaved in Egypt, and they're suffering cruel oppression there. Their lives are a living hell of merciless toil imposed upon them, and they cry out to God for relief. In his love for his people, God delivers them from their captors, and he does so through water. The Israelites march through the parted Red Sea, away from the death and slavery of Pharaoh, and toward the life of freedom God has promised to them. Moving from the land of Egypt into the wilderness of Sinai is, you guessed it, movement from west to east. And God makes it really clear then. Egypt is the place of death, and to return there would be to welcome death and to deny the life God wants for them. But after they're sprung from Egypt, it's not like the Israelites are immediately residents in the land of milk and honey. They are to sojourn in stages in the wilderness to prepare them to inherit and inhabit the promised land. And some of the Israelites complain. The food in the desert is sparse, so God gives them manna. But they tire of manna, and they complain. So God gives them a quail. But they tire of the same meat, and they complain, remembering their flesh pots and the produce of Egypt and longing to return there so they can sup on more sumptuous meat and melons and garlic and cucumbers. Egypt has captivating cuisine, but remember, it's the place where you were slaves. Would you rather be slaves with cucumbers and garlic or free to worship God? And sadly, the temptation is so frequently to choose the former and not the latter. It was more tempting for the Israelites, and it can be for us, to go with the sure thing, even if it means we are demeaned and degraded, than to place our whole trust in God and to have confidence that he will provide everything we need. In other words, it's tempting for us to stay exactly where we are or to return to the place we just came from than to move closer to Jesus. Every step of the procession is an act of trust in God's providence and provision. This dynamic plays itself out in the Old Testament a lot. Whenever crisis comes, Israel turns its eyes to Egypt as a place of refuge and safety and provision, but it never turns out the way Israel thinks it will. Whenever they lust after the safety and abundance of Egypt, Israel always ends up more impoverished more destitute, and more vulnerable than they were. Egypt is the place of slavery and death, and you shouldn't want to go there. The opening procession is, in the setting of the liturgy, the movement of God's people from the place of death to the place of life. 
from slavery and oppression to freedom and beatitude. At Mass, the procession is the Exodus, the west-to-east pilgrimage of the people of God to the home God has promised to them. God promised Israel, the land of Canaan. What is our promised land as Christians? It's not to be found on a globe or a map. It's the very kingdom of heaven. And passing through the waters of baptism, the procession is our pilgrimage to our heavenly home. When the procession moves to the east, the destination isn't Canaan, but the new Jerusalem descended from God that houses all the saints. It's hard for most of us to imagine all of this during the procession because, well, most of us are not processing. Most of us are standing in the pew watching the priest and the other ministers process. So it can be easy for us to think that we're not part of this part of the Mass, that we don't have a role in it. The truth is that you do have a role in it. You have a role in every part of the Mass. You're not in that procession, not because you don't belong there, but because it would be a logistical nightmare to have so many people in procession. But if the time on the clock weren't an issue, and mobility troubles weren't an issue, and space weren't an issue, all the faithful would be in the procession because all the faithful are pilgrims on the way. This image of the church, the people of God as pilgrims, found renewed color and hue during the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s. For the last 2,000 years, there have been many images the church has used to depict itself. So the church as pilgrim is not the only way to think about it. And it's not an image invented by the council. It's an ancient one through which the council saw the church afresh and anew. And if you've ever been on pilgrimage, much of this makes sense. A pilgrimage is not a vacation. You're not going on pilgrimage for amusement or entertainment. A pilgrimage can be uncomfortable and even unpleasant because you might not know exactly what the itinerary is, where you're going to be at all times, or what the bed and board are going to be like. It can be dangerous because you leave the security of your home. Father Daniel and I are leading a pilgrimage to the Holy Land at the beginning of Advent, and because neither of us has been to the Holy Land before, there's a lot to it that we just don't know what to expect. A pilgrimage is mysterious. The Second Vatican Council challenged us as Catholics to see our journey of faith like that. We know what the destination is, and we might even know what the road is to get there, but we still have to make the journey. Journeys take time, and we do encounter hardships and difficulties. We know that we're journeying towards heaven, but that doesn't mean the road isn't going to be bumpy along the way. One of the immensely consoling things about the church is that though the journey is arduous and pilgrimages aren't always pleasant, it's that we don't journey alone. There's an entire community of fellows who are with us along the way, the greatest of whom is our Lord and our brother, Jesus Christ. Yes, we are journeying to Jesus, but because he became one of us in all things but sin, and took upon himself a full human nature, he is not only our destination, he's our companion. We can and should find solace in the fellowship of other Catholics during this earthly pilgrimage towards our heavenly and eternal home, but the greatest solace is to be found in the promise that Jesus is with us, just like he said he would be at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age.
that Jesus is our companion on this journey is a great comfort. But wait, there's more. Last episode, I talked about the etymology of narthex and why this place just outside the door of the church is so significant, much more so than just a mere meeting space. Well, the same is true about the word companion. Companion comes from two Latin words, cum, which means with, and panis, which means bread. Companion literally means breadfellow, the one with whom I share my food. And remember the culmination and the climax of the Mass. We receive the very bread of life, which is Jesus himself. Our Lord and our God becomes our food, and he's with us on our pilgrimage. Remember the Israelites out in the Sinai Desert. They cry for food, and God gives them manna, the bread from heaven. That was from God, but it wasn't God. We receive from God's hand, God himself, for our food. The manna sustained the Israelites for 40 years until they entered the earthly land of promise. The bread of life sustains us on the journey until we arrive into the heavenly land of promise. At the beginning of Mass, we're nowhere near the consecration of the bread and wine to become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But during the procession, we act as though it is already there, that Jesus is already our companion, because he is. Think of this the next time you're at Mass and the procession enters the church. Think about how you are a part of that procession, how your journey isn't just from the back of the church to the front, but is the lifetime journey from death to life, from slavery to sin to liberation in Christ, that this moment of the Mass is meant to represent the entirety of the Catholic life from rebirth and baptism to the death of the body and arrival at the shores of heaven. That procession is itself a pilgrimage in miniature, a here and now depiction of life in Christ. And Jesus Christ is with you as you go. What you see with the eyes of the body might be only a few servers and readers and the priest, but the eyes of faith see the triumphant train of prophets and martyrs and saints on their way to heaven. And you're one of them. There are a few times during the year when all the faithful will join in the procession, and it's worth noting when they are so that you won't be surprised when they happen and you can prepare yourselves for them. Before the liturgical reforms of the Second Vatican Council, I made to understand the processions were a more frequent part of Catholic practice and devotion, and in some places of the Catholic world, there remains a robust tradition of and calendar for processions. There's a procession in which the faithful should participate on Palm Sunday at the beginning of Holy Week. On Palm Sunday, we don't begin inside the church, and Mass doesn't begin with the procession. Mass begins outside the church with the proclamation of the first gospel. When we hear about Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem five days before his crucifixion, we hear about the crowds that led him in or followed him, and in procession we are that crowd, carrying palm branches and singing Hosanna like the crowds in Jerusalem did 2,000 years ago. Another time we process is on the Feast of Corpus Christi, the body and blood of Christ. It's customary to have a Eucharistic procession on Corpus Christi, at least around the perimeter of the parish. This procession could be around the entire border of the parish's territory, 
but that would be really hard in Oklahoma where parish boundaries could encompass hundreds of square miles. Following the monstrance with the Blessed Sacrament exposed, the faithful pray for the blessing and protection of the Lord for the parish and for all who reside within the parish's territory. Corpus Christi processions are great because it's very clear that we are following the Lord because, well, we are following the Lord. They're also great because they're public. The faithful process on the, after the Lord on sidewalks and on streets populated with people who aren't Catholic and some who aren't Christian. And seeing such a procession is unusual. Because we're curious about unusual things, people might ask, what's all this about? And that's a perfect opportunity to evangelize, to share the good news. We are in the train of the Lord and Master of the universe, and you can be too. Remember when the Israelites were about to enter into the land of promise and were told by God to process around the city of Jericho for seven days? They were supposed to follow the Ark of the Covenant as a sign that God was their king. God was present on the Ark, but the Ark was not God. On Corpus Christi, we're not just following the throne of God. We're following God himself. Being a Christian disciple is about following Jesus Christ. And the big takeaway from Corpus Christi is to discern how we follow Christ in all things. It's easy to follow him with our feet for an hour or two, but how do we follow him in every instance of our lives? How do I follow Christ and only Christ in my work, my studies, my family, my neighborhood, my leisure? I've been a part of one Eucharistic procession at the cathedral in Tulsa, and there's something exhilarating about a public procession that happens while there are lots of people on the sidewalk or in cars driving by. For those who are witnessing it, the question might just be, what are those crazy Catholics doing? And from the outside, it probably looks downright bizarre. I think this is exhilarating because we as Catholics should be bizarre. Our lives should be ordered in such a way that we stand out from the rest of our society and from our culture. If we look just like everyone else, there's a big problem. Jesus commanded us to be leaven for the world in which we live, which means the Catholic life has to be different. It has to be different in our homes, our workplaces, our schools, certainly our churches, and even on our sidewalks. All of this meaning is packed into a part of the Mass that might take 30 seconds or a minute to elapse, and it's possible to unearth even more meaning about the procession. The first thing of the Mass is far from something that just happens, but it by itself is an encapsulation of the whole of salvation history. The procession by itself tells the story of the Gospel and proclaims the Lordship of Jesus Christ, but it's just the first part of the liturgy, and every part of the liturgy does that. It's astonishing in its wonder, the Mass. In a typical procession at Sunday Mass, you're likely to see some or all of what the general instruction calls the ministers of the Mass. It used to be before the 1960s that all the ministers of the Mass were in orders. They were part of the Church's hierarchy, either in major orders, bishops and priests, deacons and subdeacons, or in minor orders, porters, lectors, exorcists, and acolytes. 
Today, minister doesn't just mean those who have been ordained, but all those who contribute to the execution of the liturgy, some of whom are laymen or laywomen. That might not be the best word, and I'm struggling with my nouns and verbs here. The Mass is not a performance, so the ministers aren't performing. And what they contribute to the Mass goes beyond mere functions. Even the ministers at Mass are meant to communicate Christ to the assembly of the faithful. And I don't know if English has a good word for what they do except minister. Part of the issue here is that we tend to collapse ministry onto what ministers do. And that's not what a minister is in the church. We are what we do is the modern conception of identity. But this isn't the mind and heart of the church. Within the church, doing follows being, not the other way around. Those who minister in the church are expressing something that they are, not just fulfilling functions. So the ministry of the server or the deacon or the priest or the bishop does not rest on the service a server does or the diaconal things a deacon does or the presbyteral things a priest does or the episcopal things a bishop does. Who we are funds what we do. This is why the church doesn't just allow anyone who wants to do a particular ministry to do that ministry, but demands formation to discern whether that person is suitable for that ministry. I was in formation for six years before I was ordained as a deacon. A priest might have eight years of formation. A bishop might be consecrated after 20 years as a priest. And not to jump off the high dive into holy orders, but if ministry in the church is an expression of who a person is and not just what they do, that takes time for a person to discover. I think this should be said for all the ministers at Mass, not just the ordained ones. We treasure everyone's willingness to serve, but the church has the responsibility to ensure that they're suited to serve in that way. Because the liturgy is not just something we do, but our worship of Almighty God, the service we render should be excellent, and the one serving doing so solely for the love of God and for the glory of God. The first in procession is the thurifer. This is a server who carries the thurible a vessel containing burning coals into which incense will be loaded to make fragrant smoke. The smoke ascends upwards and symbolizes the prayers of the elect rising to heaven. That's from the book of Revelation. But the smoke also creates a sort of cloud. And in the book of Exodus, God goes before the sojourning Israelites in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of flame at night. From the flaming coals comes a kind of smoke reminding us that we are led by God in much the same way. Following the thurifer is the crucifer. This is a server who carries the crucifix. By processing after the image of Jesus on the cross, we remember that it was by our Lord's passion and cross that the world was redeemed, and that if we wish to receive the grace of resurrection that he accomplished, we must deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow him. We follow him where he went, to Calvary, so that we can rise with him into the eternity of heaven. Because of this, the Catholic Church has instructed that the processional cross depict our Lord in his crucifixion and not in his glory. It's not that we deny the risen Christ, far from it. It's that the gateway to the resurrection, both for Christ and for us, is death. And through Christ's death and resurrection, death has been defeated. Jesus beat the enemy using the enemy's own weapon against him. 
Then there are servers who carry candles. I don't mean to be scandalous about this, but the liturgical name for these servers is Lucifer's, light bearers. That the devil is called Lucifer shows us how far he fell. He was created to bear the light of God who is pure light, but refused to acquiesce to God's plan of redemption. The servers don't give Lucifer a good name, the evil one gives it a bad name. If we're thinking only in useful terms, it's pointless to have candles at Mass. We have electric lights, and most Masses happen when there's enough light outside to see. The Lucifers don't provide light for our physical eyes so much as for the eyes of faith to see what would otherwise be dim. The Lucifers accompany the cross and later the gospel. They're a symbol of the Holy Spirit who opens the eyes of our souls to see the heavenly and eternal realities to which the eyes of sense are unseeing. The Holy Spirit who came to the apostles on Pentecost and empowered them to spread the gospel to every nation. And check out what just happened in the procession, the smoke, the crucifix, and the candles, three images of the divine persons of the Trinity, leading the procession of God's people towards heaven. That's not accidental. Imagine how the church is disposing us for the sublime communion that the Mass brings, and imagine if everyone could receive that disposition and live it fully. There might be included in the procession those who are doing the readings from the Old Testament and the epistle during the Liturgy of the Word. There is a formal ministry in the church called Lector, which sees people receive a specific blessing and commission from the bishop to minister at Mass. Those who have not received this instituted ministry are not properly called lectors, but readers. Then there is a deacon. The deacon is a man who has been ordained with the first of the church's holy orders. He's not a junior priest or a glorified altar servant. He is a cleric whose identity is conformed to Jesus Christ as servant. During the Mass, the deacon serves the word by proclaiming the gospel, serves the altar by assisting at the paschal sacrifice, and in charity serves the people by administering Holy Communion to them. And then comes the priest. The priest is a man who has been ordained with the second of the church's holy orders. The word priest means one who offers sacrifice, which tells us something about what the priest does and about what the priest is. But remember, doing follows being, so the priest is a man who has been conformed to Christ the priest, to Christ who is himself the sacrifice for the salvation of the world. Just as Jesus Christ offers himself for others, the priest's life must be an offering. This is one of the reasons the discipline has developed in the Latin church that priests are celibate. Without a family of their own, a priest can make his entire life an offering for all of the people. I was at a dinner a little while ago where a bunch of families were introducing themselves to each other, and there was a priest in attendance to bless the food. Families were giving their names and how many kids they had and what their kids' names were. And when it came to the priest, he said his name. And one of the people in attendance said, And how many kids do you have, Father? Everyone laughed at this. But then the priest gave a very priestly answer. I guess about eight billion. That's a priest who understands that his life is an offering for others. A priest who knows that he's a spiritual father to anyone and everyone. That's a priest who knows what he is and not just what he does. 
When we get to the part of forming our faith that deals with the sacraments, I'll get into the nuances of holy orders and what the Church believes about the priesthood, not to mention the diaconate and the episcopate. But for now, I'll ask that if you've made it this far and are listening to this, that you resolve to pray for priests daily. For one thing, priests labor under what can be some really heavy burdens, and some of them are burdens they have to bear without the assistance of any other human being. A priest in the confessional, for instance, may not, under any circumstance, reveal what has been confessed, and that can be a weighty burden. In many places, priests live alone, and that can be a weighty burden. Priests who are pastors have to make decisions about the administration of their parishes, and that might anger or alienate people. And knowing that you might disappoint people is a weighty burden. And those are just the obvious things. There are spiritual battles priests fight that we're not privy to, and because the evil one desires the ruin of the church, he seeks to ruin priests. So please pray for priests. Commit yourself to fasting so that priests can be faithful to Christ and to his church, that they grow in holiness so they can lead their people to holiness. And this goes for all priests, from the one who pastors the smallest parish to the Holy Father, who is the shepherd for the whole of humanity. Pray for their faith, for their courage, for their fidelity, and for God's providence for them. This kind of prayer shouldn't be alien to our life of faith. It's part of what we contribute to the building up of the church. It's how we act heroically in the middle of a scandalous, blasphemous, and sacrilegious time. We're made for heroism, and heroism isn't just what we do that others see. Sometimes it's about what we do when no one but God sees. Well, it's taken us four episodes to get about a minute into Mass. At this rate, we'll be finished with the Mass sometime in 2026. Maybe a better name for this podcast would be Forming Your Patience. Well, no matter. It took the Israelites 40 years to reach the land of promise. Remember it, the motto of forming our faith. Never, ever settle for anything less than the heroism for which you were born. Knowing that you're on a pilgrimage, that you're a stranger in a strange land, but on your way home, requires heroic virtue. The world, the flesh, and the devil will try to get you to shrink away from that virtue and to say, I'm pretty comfortable where I am. Don't give in. St. Augustine tells us that our hearts are restless until they rest in the Lord. And on this pilgrimage, that restlessness should drive you on, not drive you away. You're on your way home. Follow Christ and be a hero.